Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting August 12, 2016, we hear why Western reporting is ineffective, even counterproductive, in the effort to end so-called honor killings in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and other nations where they have a long and bloody tradition. We'll also point out top features in the new WPJ summer issue. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. In 2014, Zakia was in a women's shelter in Bamiya to protect her from honor killing. The young man she loved, Muhammad Ali, was in hiding. They had violated strict Afghan traditions to try to marry despite ethnic and sectarian differences. New York Times correspondent Rod Nordland, the former Kabul bureau chief, promoting his book The Lovers, Afghanistan's Romeo and Juliet, which followed a Times video on the endangered couple, which followed Nordland's original reporting on their plight. The book's publisher, Echo, boasts that the couple's story illustrates, quote, the limits of Western influence on fundamentalist Islamic culture and at the same time the need for change, unquote. But an article in the new summer issue of World Policy Journal argues that typical Western coverage of such outrages and what public reaction they actually inspire is ineffective, often counterproductive. Headlined Honor Killings, Telling Their Stories Won't End the Crimes, it was written by attorney Rafia Zakaria, also a columnist for Dawn, Pakistan's largest English-language newspaper. And we spoke about it recently for this podcast. Rafia Zakaria, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you so much, David, for having me. Let's start, as your article does, with your first exposure to the term honor killing. Tell us about that, the specific case and your reaction. When I was growing up, I grew up in Karachi in Pakistan, and one of the first exposures I had to this term was while reading a magazine, um, and it involved a case of a young girl that had been killed uh, by the men in her family uh, because she had chosen to marry of her own volition. She'd, she wanted to marry someone other than the person that her family had chosen for her. And... Um, you know, I was I was pretty young at the time. Uh, I was just a kid, and I remember um, how chilled I was at reading that story. Not simply, of course, because of the grotesque nature of the of the murder itself, but based on this idea that these people or people who are so close to you. Um, you know, I have a, I have a twin brother. And uh, obviously, I have I have a father, and the people who are that close to you um, could turn against you. And the account I had read was, you know, was a, was of an educated woman, so in in a you know in an urban environment. So um, you know, so it it hit it hit very close to home, um, and it made it it, it definitely spurred. Uh, both confusion and curiosity as to how something like this could happen, um, you know, how things devolved to the point that um, that someone who loved you so much could kill you and how that murder could somehow be condoned by the rest of the family. So um, so those are questions I remember, uh, obviously, in, 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 a, in a much more sort of childish way, um, resonating and sort of echoing through my mind while I was, um, you know, when I first read that story. Since then, you note, Western coverage of honor killings has increased, but so the number of killings. Both in Pakistan, where a young model recently was killed by her brother for posting what he called shameful Facebook photos, and across the region. Give us some statistics. Well, I mean, just in Pakistan alone, there have been over 1,100 killings, honor killings, last year. And the number is in, you know, I think it's it's similar, it's reaching similar proportions this year. Um, in addition to that, if you look at 
statistics from Turkey um, and several other Muslim countries, there's a similar increase in honor crimes, as they're called. And for me personally, as a columnist, of course, the tragedy, the sort of sense of dejection is based on the fact that, I mean, I've been writing about honor killings now. Um, you know, I became a columnist, in, uh, not for Dawn, but in general in 2007 and for Dawn in 2009. And I have written about honor killings again and again and again. Prior to that, I've worked on, on cases involving honor killings. So as an activist, um, and especially because when I, when I do look back, I look back to that moment when I was a kid. Um, I'm a grown adult now, and um, and it seems that you know not only is the number increasing, but the moral dynamics of the issue remain um, the same. And so my um, current concern, um, because I've, I I am so committed this idea of uh, that this has to end. My current concern with the article and with my activism in general is, uh, you know, what are we missing and what's, what, what, what is going wrong in the advocacy around honor killings, in the way we tell the story of honor killings, that we are just absolutely failing in making even the smallest dent um, in the number of women who are being killed uh, in these sorts of crimes. In fact, you go on to show how especially Western coverage can make the problem worse, at least for those who survive, uh, what can be a really brutal mix of self-righteous and prurient interest. Tell us about the woman named Mukhtar Mai from southern Punjab uh, that you came into contact with. First, what had happened to her? Well, Mukhtar Amai's case, uh, you know, it's, it's well known, I think, to feminists everywhere uh, in Pakistan as well as abroad. This was a case in which a young woman, um, you know, her her brother was accused of having an affair uh, with a woman of another tribe. And to deal with that situation, there was a tribal council in her village of Mirwala uh, that met. And the decision of the tribal council was that to uh, avenge for um, what her brother had done, uh, Mukhtara would be gang raped and then paraded through um, the village. Now it's not exactly known if the parading was part of the was a part of the Pachayat or the Jirga's decision, uh, tribal council's decision. But that is what happened, is that she was brutally gang-raped by a number of men whom she knew, whom she identified. And then she was paraded, uh, you know, half-clothed through the streets of her village. Um, The very, very courageous and notable thing about Mukhtara is that unlike most women, who have been dishonored in in this way, she did not choose to just simply end her life because she couldn't deal with the shame that had been heaped on her. And instead, she became an advocate, first in Pakistan and then internationally, uh, speaking out against honor crimes, against crimes against women, against sexual violence, um, and against sort of the community uh, condoning of violence against women. I became familiar, excuse me, with her case, you know, after after all of this had happened. And, you know, she had actually been invited to the United States. Uh, she was given the Glamour Woman of the Year Award. And as part of that, she... Um, you know, there were, at the time, this was the Bush administration, um, there were several sort of government and NGO officials in D.C. who wanted to meet with Mukhtara. And so that's how I kind of became involved with that case. You volunteered to be the translator at her meeting with a member of the Bush administration, uh, a quite yes. painful session as it turned out. Tell us about this man's attitude and behavior and Mukhtara's reactions. 
So, you know, so I here I am in D.C. with Mukhtara and Nassim, who is, uh, you know, who is her companion who had come with her uh, to the United States. And one of the meetings that had been set up was a meeting with one of the Bush uh, White House uh, officials, um, you know, in the office building that I, I think it's adjoining the White House, but it's part of the part of the the complex or whatever and um so it was it was it was you know two or three in the afternoon and the three of us go into this office and the gentleman is there and uh you know he asks Mukhtara to sit I mean he had like a little couch uh and a couple of chairs in front of his desk so he gets her and Nassim to sit on the on the couch and then he pulls his chair literally like in their face i mean it's really close and you know he he starts almost interrogating her about what happened so it, it was just a very very odd uh situation because you know we had we had had several meetings and um and perhaps because most of the meetings we had had were people were with people who are familiar with uh human rights issues uh so was this person he was in charge of some dimension of the human rights work that the bush administration was doing at the time and he started to interrogate her and almost uh barrage her with questions not so much about what she wanted to accomplish as an advocate but about the details of the crime about what exactly happened when she was uh gang raped um about you know how she it, i mean it was question after question um that was so personal and so actually voyeuristic that i remember even as a translator being stunned even in trying to translate his questions to her but you know what what i was uh ultimately i mean I, personally at the time i i was a very i was a you know just graduated from law school i i was i, I was i just didn't know what what could be done i was kind of flummoxed but muqtara you know just at after the third such question you know because she she kept saying i don't i don't want to go into the details of the incident and uh he kept uh as, asking the question and then she just said you know let's go you know i'm i'm leaving i'm done here um and we left but that was the sort of moment or interaction that you never forget because her discomfort was so palpable and his sort of voyeuristic interest in the details of the story was so aggressive that uh you know I mean you you sometimes know these things as you know of them to happen you know where where men don't believe or when where they are voyeuristic about these details um perhaps because they don't think she's telling the truth or for whatever reason but uh to see it happen was something that really shook me to the core because i could see in a sense just how convoluted um this exchange had become become and how far we had strayed from the central issue which is you know working on a global level to reduce violence against women in general and against honor crimes in particular i couldn't process all of it at the time and uh it's taken me almost you know a decade to sort of figure out what the problem is in the way global advocacy around honor crimes you know essentially puts victims or survivors rather in a situation that is extremely untenable and that is not really addressing the core of the issue so, i thought i thought it was interesting though among the things you said about that was that even to put the best face on it he had to possess 
the facts because he was going to become her advocate as if, as if he were taking that part of her life. And also that uh, the inevitable reduction of the victim, uh, a survivor, uh, to just the brutal facts of the attack. In other words, the, the survivor becomes her story and to even to good-hearted advocates, uh, no more than uh, an assemblage of those facts. That is precisely it. So, I mean, the larger issue in which that fits, of course, is that, and, and that I point out, is that the existence of honor killings and the fact that there's community involvement in carrying out honor crimes becomes sort of this moral, it, it's beca- it becomes the end of a moral spectrum. It's just like, you know, this is pure evil, whereas, you know, Society against which Western societies can judge themselves and say, okay, well, we don't have this, so we're good. Um, and so, you know, within that realm, yes, I mean, one of the biggest problems with that situation, and it, I mean, it might not happen in quite as uh, sort of drastic and definitive terms um, all the time, was precisely what you said. It was the fact that he wanted to own these facts. He wanted to know more and the most about her crime so that, as you, as you said, he could own it and then represent it uh, for other people. And similarly, she, uh, as you said, um, you know, and, and this happens not just to her, but to, to, to all uh, survivors of honor crimes, where they become um, their story in the sense that, you know, they represent this kind of, uh, the, the, you know, this kind of victimization, this moral extreme, um, which can then be used as an example for other things. So instead of an individual who has a life and who has aspirations, and Mukhtar was a particularly good example of this because she was very, is and was very, very committed to not letting this become her identity. She wanted to be an activist. She wanted to be able to tell her story to inspire and give strength to other women. But instead, she was sort of being pushed into this box where her job was to tell her story and tell it again and again and again and again, Um, you know, and, and not really then have an opinion about what would be done with her story or what it would be used for, um, you know, and where it would be sort of either plugged within human rights discourse or or within, you know, a political discourse of, of like, the good countries and the bad countries. So um, that, I think, is something very, very troubling, and I see it happen again and again um, because... On the global advocacy scale, um, these stories have now become, um, you know, part of the supply for a discourse that says that there are certain societies and certain moral communities that are sort of beyond help, you know, that uh, that are so depraved that um, that there is really no recourse except to extricate women from these communities, um, you know, and and, and to get them out. Um, And that really is what troubles me, is that um, the the women themselves have very little volition to what, you know, very little, I mean, they have a story, and that story increasingly has sort of almost a marketable value, uh, particularly within the West. And so there's, it's an odd kind of narrative commodification where you take, uh, you know, survivors of honor crimes and then you take that story and then that story fulfills a, a purpose that's quite alienated from the project of actually ending honor killings um, and plugged into a different moral system where its implicit message is that all women, uh, you know, here, women in America don't, you know, don't complain too much because, look, this is what's happening over there. 
So at least, hmm. you know, you, you're not um, being killed for honor crimes. But that, you know, that discourse, and it's a separate debate. And it's a debate that doesn't really, uh, it's, it's a debate that's lost the plot because it's no longer focused on the issue of, of ending honor crimes. It's no longer focused on the issue that unless uh, you're somehow uh, using the story to push moral change within the communities themselves, um, you know, the, the, the story is, uh, I mean, you're, there's no point to it in terms of actually helping the survivors. Well, in Mukhtara's case, Pakistani courts acquitted five men accused of raping her, but international coverage did bring unexpected financial support. What has it meant for her life and her mission? Well, at the time, yes. Uh, you know, there she did uh, receive financial support, and um, it helped her open a school and run a shelter, and I believe she still runs that that school now. Uh, I'm I'm not sure as to you know how much of that financial support is still continuing, um, but the the I mean there's there's separate issues here. One of the issues about financial support is is very crucial because that is exactly what I mean when I say you know um, there's a certain uh, almost dollar value that's attached to these stories now because there is almost a demand uh, for their consumption on the international level. And um, the downside of that is that it, 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 it that sort of value undermines the actual change you want to you know you want to happen in the community so you know when a, a survivor of an honor crime uh, is able to tell her story and if she gets financial or other help somehow from um, international international press or from um, international human rights organizations um, then um, within the community, that person becomes even more alienated, even more ostracized, because the whole entire sort of the sale of that story depends on sort of uh, painting the issue in, in, in a very black and white manner, so that the community is bad, they want to kill women, the, the woman is good, and it's not that there aren't stark moral comparisons there. It's just that uh, it's the sort of rubric of international advocacy that determines how the story is told versus uh, what should be the motivation, which is that how do you incentivize this community to not do this anymore? In the case of the runaway couple focused on by Rod Nordland, the coverage was even more intrusive and potentially fatal, uh, dramatically disclosing uh, their hideaway. Tell us about that. Yes, and so the the Rod Nordland uh, story it was it was a story that you know it's a book now, but prior to that it it appeared in the New York Times it was a story of a couple uh she was uh they're from different uh ethnic groups in Afghanistan uh they were neighbors or 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 lived close by at some point they fell in love um their families at least one family not uh the not the groom's family but her family opposed the match and uh, she ran away to a shelter, which is, I assume, where Rod Nordland heard of her and then began to uh, tell the story. And the egregious part of this story, of course, was that, um, you know, even while this couple was on the run, their story was published in the New York Times, which gave away their identities, um, which uh, essentially, ex like you said, exposed them to even greater danger. Uh, and he, he says he admits to this in the book. Uh, and I don't know if he admits to it 
you know, from a sense of um, guilt, perhaps, that, uh, that he, he, in getting his story, again, you know, a story that generates so much interest, um, that he had endangered them or or that he just, you know, sort of thought that that was a, a, a collateral fact that he didn't have to really worry about. In any case, uh, that's what happened. They were on the run. And then the particularly um, upsetting to me uh, incident that is recalled in the book is that so here you have Nordland he's published the first edition of the story in uh, the New York Times with pictures and everything else and there's huge amounts of interest according to him in in the book so I'm I'm, I'm just really uh, saying what he says himself and so he uh, wants to keep the story going and he wants to follow this couple. Um, now, in the book itself, it says that they were not returning his calls. Uh, it seemed that they were just, you know, trying to, to get away from the world. And he finally tracks down the father of uh, the, the boy or the man. And the father is so poor that he actually does not have the financial means. He knows where these these kids are, uh, but he doesn't have the financial means to um, to go there. So uh, essentially, Nordland pays his way uh, in exchange for being allowed to go with him, complete with his videographer and his photographer. And this is how they uh, end up again in convoys that, you know, with obviously in Afghanistan, if you're white, you attract attention, following this couple. When they get to where they are, Ali, again, the, the, the husband isn't there, and uh, the girl refuses to, to talk to them or meet with them. So they wait around then until... Uh, he returns and because, and, you know, I mean, they're not going to give up without this story. But in the meantime, the photographer um, just, I mean, and, and, and this is in the book. So uh, Rod Nordland says that the photographer kind of didn't know English or, or pretended not to know it's irrelevant because I know that these people don't know English regardless. Um, you know, in Afghanistan, it's very, very common knowledge that there are women's spaces in which men don't enter. Well, this photographer barges in there anyway. That's where she's hiding. And he takes pictures of her. Um, and then, of course, uh, after her husband returns, they, um, you know, Nordland convinces him. And then there are more pictures. But, of course, the notable thing is that Nordland uh, admits at the end of this episode to giving money to them uh, so that uh, because of the situation they're in. But really, it's very difficult to tell. Are you giving them money for the fact that you took their pictures and you did all of this sort of, you know, you got your story, regardless of the consequences it would have for them. Uh, and I think that that situation, that whole, the telling of that story is very, very important because it shows that um, the story is molded and presented in a way that Western, re that, you know, that resonates with Western readers where they go, oh my God, this poor couple, oh my God, what a horrific country Afghanistan is, oh my gosh, what a story, uh, you know, and doesn't really address either the complications of the situation on the ground or even uh, the wishes of the couple. So it's almost like, you know, you have to sell your story um, and, and, and that in, becomes a commodity in itself. Um, I was struck also in that book uh, with a discussion that they had. And, and I think that they've actually, the couple has now actually been able to get asylum um, in the United States or, or apply for asylum. But at the time, the U.S. State Department said they didn't want anything um, to do with the case. And so Nordland 
and some of the people that had responded when they first saw the story were talking about uh, taking this couple and uh, moving them to Rwanda, which, I mean, I thought was just so absurd because it, it, it highlights the fact that, you know, once the, the story is commodified and told in a certain way, it becomes almost impossible for these couples to survive in the communities that they live because uh, the the way the story is told um, of this sort of inherently depraved moral community, um, there is just no way that, that 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 community will accept them again. And uh, of course, it's it's not as if the ex- accepting them should be the goal. The reason I point this out is that look. We cannot get asylum for every couple or every girl or every woman who faces an honor crime in the country that she faces it. We cannot extricate them from these communities. So the question becomes that after literally decades of telling these stories, because now it's been decades since, since we've been writing and doing advocacy, on on crimes very similar to this, on couples endangered in a very similar way, is that we are telling the story in a way that provides no incentives at all for actual moral change within the communities. So, for instance, you know, it is never recognized that the that the people who commit these honor crimes often, if not always, don't consider themselves as doing something wrong because they believe that they are protecting the other women in the community so that this girl has brought aspersion because she has run off with whoever. But my five other sisters want to be married too. And unless I do this, those five sisters' lives are ruined. Now, this is a very bad moral calculation, of course, but it's a moral calculation to which we have to pay some attention because until you take that away, uh, people will continue doing this. And as, you know, I mean, so we've, we've obviously been talking about moral, you know, honor crimes in particular specifically, but they're taking place within, obviously, a larger um, geopolitical discourse, which says, okay, these are uh, the morally depraved societies, and then, you know, you've got the West that's enlightened, and those are the good societies. So if you, if you consider that as the backdrop, then honor crimes, instead of sort of people paying attention uh, to the advocacy around them, in the communities in which they're happening, they kind of see it just as a, okay, well, you know, this outcry happened because they hate us anyway. Does the community reaction stem from culture or from religion? What is the, what is the, the ultimate basis for finding that moral calculation that, that that this is an acceptable act because it is doing good for other sisters, but is it based in 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 culture or in the larger religion? Well, within Islamic doctrine, there's absolutely zero uh, prescription for any kind of honor honor crime of honor killing. So, so there is nothing, absolutely nothing in Islamic religious uh, sources, whether it's the Quran or the Hadith, um, that say that you should, you should commit a crime like this. It's in fact quite to the contrary because, um, you know, if, if female infanticide was one of, was very prevalent at the time that um, in the early years of Islam. And so there's actually prescriptions against uh, that in the Quran, but there, so there's, so there's no religious basis, no doctrinal basis. But of course you have to remember that anytime you have a very patriarchal culture, it will use 
even tangential or cherry-picked aspects of faith to justify patriarchy. And so, you know, that's so it's difficult to sort of disaggregate that, disaggregate, you know, which bits and pieces. Now, in Pakistan in particular, and I would imagine this is true of most uh, Muslim countries, there are laws that prevent the prosecution of honor killings. And I've written a lot, and there has been a lot of advocacy around it. For instance, one of the laws is that uh, in, in murder cases in Pakistan, and this is not just uh, honor crimes, this is for, for all uh, murder cases, if the victim's family uh, forgives the murderer, and there can be an exchange of uh, compensation, uh, blood money, in, um, you know, in that act of forgiveness, uh, then there is no prosecution of, of the person who has committed the murder. Of course, now this law assumes the ability to make that decision freely without pressure and coercion, where there is a sort of a legal system that that protects the rights of both sides uh of course you know and and uh, that doesn't exist in pakistan by definition right. in cases where a brother takes it on himself Precisely. to uh preserve the the family's honor by killing his sister there is only one family involved that's exactly the problem uh, you you know you summarized it uh summarized it well, exactly how does this view your view shape the way you or reporters at dawn cover honor killings differently than the western press well i mean i think the the you know there are solutions to this and um the solution of course is the fact that unless women inside communities are empowered to and given a very sort of um, clearly delineated path to take the information that they have um, to law enforcement or to community elders, um, there's never going to be an end to honor killings. So for a specific example, for instance, I'll give you, is that uh, the province of Punjab in Pakistan, recently passed a law, um, uh, the Protection of Women Law. And it's not a perfect law, but there is a mechanism in it, which, uh, to my thinking, is the sort of mechanism that would have to be implemented if this were to stop. And that is the creation of sort of district-level councils made of women from the communities who have like, uh, you know, who are selected in a way by the, or not selected, but given the power to go directly to a district level uh, police officer and say, this is happening to this woman in my community and we need help and intervention. Unless you create a system of incentive where the women and also the men within these communities who oppose what's happening have a place to go immediately um, and, you know, get law enforcement involved uh, preemptively. You're not going to end honor crimes. So the international attention is, I mean, that, you know, that whole mechanism, the naming and shaming mechanism that we were using, um, it has, you know, perhaps some effect in the individual sense, right? So Mukhtara's case, for instance, that you said she received financial support and was able to do some things that she would not have been able to do. But things for the community, she, things, things for her mission. I mean, education and protection, right, uh, shelter exactly. for other women. Right, right. Right. Uh, but was she able to change perceptions within even her own community regarding, you know, the honor or the protection of women in general? I don't think so. She really wasn't. Because if you look at the numbers, that's why the numbers bother me, is because 
the numbers are increasing. And they're increasing because the attention uh, becomes focused on the individual survivor and the story, not necessarily creating these sort of grassroots mechanisms. So, you know, when everyone in the community is considered sort of uh, somehow in favor of this kind of thing, then we lose the people within the community who didn't really think this was the right thing to do, but didn't have enough power within the community to really put a stop to it. So the reason I mentioned the district councils is precisely because of this, is that until you sort of create a system of incentives on that absolute ground level where, you know, for you have... Um, a village, and there are going to be older women in the village, just like there are older men. And in Pakistan, usually age confers a sort of uh, gravitas and authority. And if you incentivize those women to be on the lookout and to have a place to take this complaint, because right now there isn't. There isn't a place to go. I mean, the police are largely inaccessible, and often there isn't someone designated in the police stations or, you know, um, in these in these villages or small towns who um, is trained and who is the point person for crimes against women. So, I mean, these are mechanisms that have the potential to work, and they're not necessarily based on sort of, I mean, it's a very different approach from, you know, the one that has been prevalent, which is that we will publicize the story in the international press, and then maybe there will be some benefits that will accrue. So, I mean, the Nordland case, again, is a great example, right? I mean, they, uh, I, I'm, I'm fairly certain that they, are in the U.S. now and have applied for asylum. That's great. That's great for them. But the fact is there's probably thousands of couples like them, right, in Afghanistan. What are they going to do? Um, so until the discourse can be fashioned in a way that it tries to get the people within the community that don't agree and gives them the power or at least the tools with which they can start saying no. So, I mean, you know, when you do that, for instance, if you sort of give, um, you know, the state comes and it says we're going to select these certain number of people to be on a district council uh, made up of women who will be the go-to women in this community. So obviously you're conferring some authority on those women. So those women are now incentivized, right, to look out for this and to talk about this and to, um, to try and prevent this. Um, and so that's a very different system of incentivization than, than right now. To play devil's advocate, the system and the solutions that you're outlining are really quite local. Uh, and so what do you say to Western journalists who, who reply that their stories are not meant to directly change morality in, in foreign towns and villages where they're rarely even seen? Uh, they hope to build U.S. pressure on national governments, on judiciaries, on top clerics. Uh, into passing and forcing laws against honor killing, uh, publicly explaining them and justifying them. Isn't, isn't that the most that Western journalism can be expected to do in a situation where, as you so uh, clearly explain, is very local at its roots and, and needs to be dealt with by the people themselves? Well, absolutely. And I, and I would say that, you know, if, if international journalists want to help uh, put the focus on ending the crime, they would have to do more grassroots reporting on the communities and try to sort of ferret, ferret out the people who don't agree with what has happened. Um, I think that, I mean, if you, you know, obviously um, I'm no one to say that these stories shouldn't be reported or they shouldn't be talked about. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that currently these stories are invested with a sort of uh, heroism. And uh, uh, this, I mean, uh, they're given uh, a value, a moral value that accrues from this idea that somehow the journalists who are telling these stories are 
doing something very uh, brave and uh, morally noteworthy uh, because the story that they're telling is uh, somehow going to uh, end honor crimes. And that is not true. So on that level, I'm just making a critique in terms of um, the fact that this sort of um, added moral value that's attached to this, these, this kind of storytelling um, is invalid. There is, you know, a, a, a film about honor killing or an article about honor killing in the New York Times is absolutely nothing to end honor killings. That's basically what I'm saying. That brings me to my last question, and uh, I have to admit some personal interest. There is that suggestion in your article that Western journalists unfairly seek some moral high ground by marketing themselves as courageous storytellers. I know Rod Nordland is a really, truly courageous war correspondent when we both worked for Newsweek. I have to wonder if he or other reporters or their audience would really believe that they risk danger covering honor killings. Have Western journalists actually been targeted on such assignments? I mean, not that I know. Um, and I believe that um, I'm, I'm certain that Mr. Nordland, in his coverage of uh, war and in being a journalist in uh, war zones in general, is is extremely brave. And to that extent, I somehow I, I, I sort of regret in that you know I mean I, I don't want to make him um, you know he is not alone the problem. Uh, I just I'm using his his story as an example because it was one that's recently told and that um, I believe illustrated some of the problems and I also don't think that he has you know any kind of a malicious or bad intent um, in terms of you know what he what he chose to do the point is is that the reason why these stories have become marketable is because they uh, provide the fodder and the credence for a certain moral view of our world. Um, and, in, you know, one that affirms Western values and one that says that, you know, these communities are beyond help because, look, they're killing their own daughters. And there's also a truth to that. But the problem is, is that, you know, those communities are aware of that discourse as much as um, as anyone else. And so when you demonize a community in its entirety, um, these sorts of actions that are set up as actions that are the moral differentiation between the good West and the bad and the, you know, uh, lesser rest, um, then it, it almost exacerbates, in fact, it does exacerbate these crimes because they are then, uh, you know, there's a sense of almost moral authenticity that is attached to them. And on the local level, even worse is the fact that it creates political incentives for local level politicians to not do too much about these crimes because uh, not doing too much about these crimes is in a very warped sort of way uh, defying the West. And defying the West and resisting the West is uh, obviously politically uh, valuable in, 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 in many of these communities um, because the West is identified now as occupier. You know, with, I mean, I don't need to go over all of that, drone attacks, occupations, this and that. So, so that is the problem. The problem is, is that if we want to just tell these stories in the West, um, you know, journalists, books, documentaries, whatever, um, that's fine. We can continue to tell them, but you know, the the, the it is a myth that these stories are somehow helping eradicate the problem. Uh, they have instead become part of the problem because uh, they are more invested in creating this sort of moral binary, which is artificial. Um, you know, there are people in these communities who oppose honor crimes deeply. Uh, but 
because it requires painting with this very broad brush, because that's what appeals to us, you know, the the black and white uh, of the issue. Uh, and this sort of very, very um, kind of uh, useless discussion of, oh, well, uh, honor crime. Well, of course, honor crimes are bad. Of course, they're murder. But how are you going to stop it? Well, taking those people out is going to help them. But is it going to, you know, really push the change that we need? So my, uh, you know, my entire focus is on asking journalists who do have power, who do have these platforms, to consider, just consider at this point, how they can tell the story differently in a way that um, reveals the fact that there are people within these communities who don't agree with these crimes and who don't want this to happen and on possible solutions that empower people to to bring about the moral change. Because, I mean, ultimately for me, human rights, the value of human rights, the value of, uh, you know, campaigns to end honor killings is that we have to change these moral perspectives. We have to change the way people think. We have to change uh, this idea that you know, that uh, the, these these murderers have, that they are somehow doing something good. That's what has to be changed. And I don't see any difference in that, um, at least, you know, over the 10 years that I've been involved in writing about honor crimes, you know, speaking to survivors, um, doing advocacy, being involved on literally every level of the issue. Rafi Zakaria, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a good discussion. Rafi Zakaria is a lawyer and a columnist for Dawn, Pakistan's largest English-language newspaper. She's also the author of last year's Beacon Press book, The Upstairs Wife, an intimate history of Pakistan, and of the article Honor Killings, telling their stories won't end the crimes in the new summer issue of World Policy Journal. Also featured in the WPJ summer issue, Renegade Cities, you'll find articles about a black market for water in the Indian city of Chennai, about public-private collaboration for affordable urban housing, at least on paper, and about the problems with plans for a northern powerhouse in Great Britain before and after Brexit. And listen next week when our podcast will feature Joseph A. Carey, chairman of the board of directors of the World Policy Institute. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.